for this applicatory worship service in which we look to make application of the gospel to our lives. We turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We read the entire chapter together. It's a very practical application to the Christian life. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, Rather, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We read God's word that far. I call your attention for the text to verses 11 through 13. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the last time that we had applicatory, we considered the first three verses of this chapter, you may recall. We considered the call to walk worthy of the name Christian by maintaining attitudes of humility, gentleness, and patience towards our brothers and sisters in the congregation. And in this way, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Apostle goes on after that text to point out that, in reality, there really only is one body. There only is one Spirit. There only is one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And therefore, we are to endeavor to keep, not to create that unity, but to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one church, but in that one church, there is a rich diversity of gifts. And that's what the Apostle goes on to talk about, a rich diversity of gifts. And the Apostle grounds his teaching in the scriptures, as he always does, Psalm 68, verse 18, where David prophesied that Christ would ascend on high and receive gifts for men. He would lead captivity captive, and he would receive gifts for men. The Apostle now takes hold of that text that David wrote in Psalm 68, And he applies it now in the New Testament church. And he points out the fact that if he ascended, then that means he first descended. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. He descended to the cross. He descended to hell. He descended to the suffering of the wrath of God against our sins. And then he arose from the dead and he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of God and filled all things and received gifts from God. Now he pours out those gifts upon his church. The Lord Jesus Christ received many gifts when he ascended into heaven. In the epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle, he mentions not only the gifts that he mentions in our text, but others... 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. And then he also mentions miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. But in the text that we are considering this afternoon, he doesn't mention all of those other gifts. He focuses our attention on the office of the minister of the word. He focuses our attention upon the gift of pastors. We see that in our text in verse 11. Are you thankful for the gift of pastors? We must be thankful for the gift of ministers of the word. And I do not say that to you this afternoon simply because I am a minister of the word. But I say that to you and I say that to myself as well. You and I, we must be thankful for pastors. And I must be thankful for the pastors that I had in my past. We are all to be thankful for pastors because a pastor is a gift from Jesus Christ that he gives to his church. Among pastors, among ministers, there is a wide diversity of gifts and measures of gifts. There is no pastor who is the same as another pastor. Every minister is different. And that's why we need to remember to be thankful for all pastors that Christ gives to his church. All faithful pastors, ministers of the word. Not just those ones that we think most highly of. Christ gives us ministers of the word not just to fill our heads with knowledge. That's what we need to see this afternoon. The Apostle teaches that Christ gives ministers of the word 
not only to fill our heads with knowledge, but for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a mature adult who reaches to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's why Christ gives pastors. Now, what does that mean? That's what we're going to consider in the sermon this afternoon. So I call your attention to the sermon under the theme, Pastors for the Perfecting of the Saints. Notice, first of all, the gift of pastors from Christ. Secondly, the equipping of the saints for ministry. And finally, the edifying of the body to maturity. When Christ ascended up into heaven, the apostle says, he received gifts, and he now gives those gifts to his church. What gifts? The apostle mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, we must understand before we go even further that Christ himself is the chief of all of these. Christ himself is the chief apostle. Christ is the chief prophet. Christ is our chief evangelist. Christ is the chief pastor and teacher in the church. As we find in other scriptures, he is the chief shepherd and bishop of our souls. He is the chief apostle. He is the head of the church, and there is no other head. I'm not the head of this church. No pastor is the head of his church. Christ is the head of every church, every true church. Christ is the chief because Christ is the one who descended from heaven into the lower parts of the earth and gave his life and suffered and gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed on the cross for us. He did that. I didn't do that. No other pastor did that. Christ did that. He suffered and died on the cross. He suffered on the cross for all of the sheep. That's why he's the chief pastor and shepherd. For all of the sheep that God gave to him. He died on the cross for his body. He is the head. And he died for the whole body that God chose in him before the foundation of the world. As we read in chapter 1. Christ loved his church. And he gave himself for his church. And therefore Christ purchased the church, and the church belongs to him. He is the chief pastor and minister in the church. But now Christ has gone up into heaven, and Christ has received the gift of ministers to give to his church in his absence until he comes again. The apostle mentions the gift of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Christ gives these ministers of the word to his church. How does he do that? Well, he calls those men. He equips them spiritually and naturally with all the gifts that they need to function in that office, and he sends them into that office. He ordains them through the laying on of the hands of the church and sends them to work. He gives ministers of the word. Now, in the text, the apostle mentions five different terms. Let's look at each of those. First of all, Christ gave apostles. That refers to those 12 men that Jesus himself personally called Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and the others last of whom was the Apostle Paul. Those 12 men, Judas Iscariot having betrayed him and fallen away, later he added the Apostle Paul. Those are the Apostles. The Apostles were certain men Christ gave to his church to do a specific work. They were personally called, personally trained, and personally sent by Jesus himself. No other can say that. No other minister after the apostles. These apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. Eyewitnesses. 
these apostles were sent on the great commission into all the world. They were sent to preach the gospel in all nations, to baptize those who believe, and to teach them everything about the gospel. These apostles were used by Christ to establish his church in the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago. The apostles were a special gift of Christ to his church in that time. Their distinguishing characteristic is that they were sent out into the world with the Great Commission to preach in all nations and to establish the church on the doctrine of the gospel. Secondly, prophets. Christ gave prophets to his church. The prophets, such as a man named Agabus that you can find in the book of Acts, the prophets were a group of men whom Christ called and to whom he gave special revelations, perhaps through dreams or visions, special revelations of hidden things, secret things, and even future events. He revealed those things to the prophets, these men. And those prophets then were filled with the Spirit and they prophesied to the church. They uttered those special revelations that they received from Christ directly in the early days of Christianity. Apostles, prophets. Thirdly, evangelists. Evangelists like Philip, who you can find in the book of Acts, were men to whom Christ gave a special understanding and zeal and skill for the proclaiming of the evangel, evangelist. The evangel is the gospel. These men made it their special task to proclaim the gospel to those outside the church, not to those inside the church. They went out and they proclaimed the evangel. Very much similar to the apostles, but the work of these men seems to have been closer to home, reaching out to those around the church with the gospel, and they did not have quite as large a task as the apostles. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then he mentions pastors and teachers, such as Timothy and Titus. They were pastors and teachers. Now, when he speaks of pastors and teachers, he's probably not speaking of two different offices. Maybe you would think that he is referring to pastors first and then to teachers, and maybe you would say that the teachers refer to professors of theology in the seminary. Some have thought that before. But it seems that the better interpretation is that these pastors and teachers were the same office. They were pastors who were teachers. They were pastors who did their work of pastoring through teaching. These were men that Christ gave in his early church to function within the church. The word pastor means a shepherd. Just as Christ is the chief shepherd, he gave shepherds under him to labor among the sheep. And as we heard earlier in our devotions after lunch, as Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. That's what pastors are to do. They are to feed the sheep. They are to shepherd the sheep, to watch over them, to care for them, to do that especially through teaching. And not only the adult sheep, but also the little lambs. So those are the gifts that Christ gives to the church. Those are the gifts he gave to the early church, immediately after his ascension. But today, Christ has combined these five functions into one office. There are some churches today who still believe and claim that there are still apostles today. There are still prophets. There are still evangelists. We don't agree with that interpretation of the text. We believe that the only abiding offices in the New Testament church are minister, elder, and deacon. The apostle does not mention elders and deacons here. He mentions them in other scriptures. He doesn't mention them here because he is focusing on the ministry of the word. Those men who were called to preach and teach the word of God. All five of those terms 
refer to the function in one way or another of preaching the word of God. Today, Christ combines these five functions into the one office of the minister of the word and sacraments. Every minister of the word functions at one time or another or is called to function as an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher. There are some who would interpret the text this way to say that Christ gave apostles, prophets, and evangelists in the early church. He no longer gives those, and now he only gives pastors and teachers, which refers to the ministers of the word. And I agree with that, but I would say that's not sufficient to interpret the text. Then what application do the first three have to us today? Rather, I would say Christ gives us today the one office of the minister of the word, but he combines in that one office all of the work that was originally done by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Christ gives ministers of the word who, like apostles, still have the calling to carry on the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not finished. The calling to go into all nations and to preach the gospel in all the world still comes to us. It comes not to apostles, but to ministers. Ministers are sometimes called to function as apostles, and generally we call them missionaries. Ministers, like the prophets in the early church, have a calling to speak out the special revelation of God. Now, ministers no longer receive special dreams and visions, like the prophets, but ministers have the scriptures, which are a rich book full of the special revelation of God. Ministers are called to function as prophets. They are called to stand up in the midst of people and to speak out boldly and zealously against the sins that are prevalent in their time, to warn people about the judgments of God that are coming in the future, and to speak about those things which must shortly come to pass. So, for example, a pastor might preach a series of sermons on the book of Revelation. Then he's functioning as a prophet. Like the evangelists, ministers of the word today have the calling to evangelize the unchurched. Every minister has that calling. Paul elsewhere said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy 4. Timothy, you're a pastor of that church in Ephesus, but also do the work of an evangelist. You're not just a pastor, you're an evangelist. You're a prophet. And a teacher, you function in all of these ways. And then finally, pastors must function as pastors, of course. In addition to those other things, they must feed the flock, teach the little lambs in the catechism class, preach the word to the whole congregation on the Lord's Day, visit the families going from house to house, bringing the word of God to the sheep, and also giving personal, private counseling to individual sheep with special needs. That's all the work of a pastor. Now, at one time or another in the life and ministry of any particular minister, he might be called to function more like an apostle, more like a prophet, more like an evangelist, more like a pastor and a teacher. There are times when a minister might be called to go out into the world, into another nation, like the apostles, as a missionary, to go far away and bring the gospel to the heathen. Every minister has that calling, and some ministers may actually be called to go far away and bring the gospel. The minister might face times in the history of the world and the culture and the church when he has to speak like a prophet He has to stand up and by the power of the Spirit do what he cannot do. Speak boldly against prevalent sinful trends in church or state. 
and also point God's people to the hope of the coming of Christ. And pastors must function as evangelists. That's the gift of pastors, of ministers that Christ gives to his church. Why? Why has Christ given ministers of the word? The answer that the apostle gives in the text, in verse 12, is this. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The apostle is not saying here that there are three distinct purposes or reasons why he gives pastors. He's not saying that pastors are to perfect the saints, pastors are to do the work of the ministry, and pastors are to edify the body of Christ. That's true, of course. Pastors are supposed to do all three of those things. But that's probably not what the apostle meant. That's probably not the best interpretation. Rather, Paul is teaching us here that Christ gives ministers for the perfecting of the saints with the goal that the saints will do the work of the ministry with the result of the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the idea. Let's dig into that a little bit. What does that mean? Who are these saints? Sometimes people think that saints are Christians of a specially holy caliber. They are a rank and a level above the rest of us. They are super Christians. That's not the idea. In Scripture, a saint is simply a child of God, a believer, a Christian. A saint is someone who has been washed by the blood of Christ, who believes in Jesus, and who is in the process of sanctification. He longs to be more holy. It's a saint. He's not perfectly holy. He's in the process of sanctification. What is meant then by ministry? Perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. I would point out that in the original Greek, we simply read, for the perfecting of the saints, for work of ministry, for ministry work, for works of ministry, not the ministry. When it says there in our King James Version, the ministry, it leaves the impression of the work of the minister, the work of the pastor. That's the work of the ministry. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking here about the work that I am supposed to do. That's in the first clause, the perfecting of the saints. But in the second clause, the work of the ministry, he's talking about ministry. And the word ministry simply means service. There's one word in the original, diakonia. That's the word for minister. That's the word for deacon. That's the word for ministry. That's the word for service. Those all come from that same word. Ministers have to serve in a certain way. Deacons have to serve in a certain way. Elders also have to serve in a certain way. But so do all the saints. We are all called to serve in the church. Christ gives pastors for the perfecting of the saints with the goal that the saints will be involved and busy in ministry, that is, in serving. What then is the idea of the whole verse? The perfecting of the saints. The word perfecting doesn't necessarily mean bring to perfection, although that idea is there as well. But the word perfecting can be translated equipping, preparing, Training, making ready for the ministry, the work of ministry, service. So you see what the job of your pastor is. What is my job? I see from this text that my job in the congregation is the perfecting of you 
for the work of service. The training, equipping, and preparing of you to serve each other. How does the minister do that? Well, he does that through preaching and teaching. Through the preaching of the gospel, the minister is called to fill our heads with knowledge. Yes, the knowledge of the scriptures, the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God's law, the knowledge of everything the scriptures teach so that we know what we are called to do. But the minister must also, by preaching the good news to us, motivate us to that work of service. How are we going to be motivated to serve each other, to wash each other's feet, to help each other, to give of our time and our money and our energy and our efforts and our prayers for the good of the other saints in the church? We must be motivated That's the preacher's job, to motivate us by preaching the gospel. The only motivation is gratitude and love for God, for all that he has done for us. That's the task of ministers, to preach the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and thereby to motivate us. The work of the pastor is to present to us our beloved Savior, Jesus and his love to lay down his life for us on the cross, to give his blessed body to be broken for us. The minister is to set forth Christ crucified and his great love and mercy for us so that we may find comfort in all of our afflictions, hope in the midst of terrible afflictions and trials, healing for the wounds and troubles and the brokenness of our hearts, That's the minister's task, to give us hope for eternal life in heaven. And then, having set forth the gospel, to set forth to us what Christ calls us to do, how Christ would have us to live our life. As we find in this chapter, the apostle says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the name Christian. The apostle there is doing the work of a pastor. He is perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry. He's telling them how much God loves them, and he's exhorting them to walk worthy of the name Christian. Live your life in a way that is worthy of that name. In all humility and meekness and gentleness and long-suffering and patience, forbearing each other doing good to each other, serving each other, washing each other's feet, helping each other in all different ways. You see, it is not just the work and calling of the minister to minister. It is the work and calling of all the saints to minister to each other. There are some people who think and sometimes say the idea that the ministers do all of the ministry. I remember hearing when I was younger, someone who I love, a family member, said that he didn't like how some people throw around the term ministry. There's a ministry for this and a ministry for that and a ministry for this and a ministry for that. And I know I think what he meant, but I don't think he was right in that. Maybe we're not used to using the term ministry that way. But the word ministry, as we find in our text, is a legitimate biblical word that refers to the work that all saints are called to do. The minister does ministry in a unique way to his office. You are not called to preach the gospel. You are not called to baptize. You are not called to administer the sacraments. You are not in the office of the minister. But, as believers and saints, every child of God has a calling to serve. Jesus said in Matthew 20, I believe it is, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. The disciples were all squabbling about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
They all wanted to be great. They all wanted people to minister to them. They all wanted people to serve them, to help them. Jesus said, I didn't come for that reason. I didn't come to be ministered unto. I came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And when Jesus was washing the dirty feet of his disciples, he said to them, I'm setting an example for you. I'm washing your feet, which was a picture of his work on the cross, shedding his blood. And now you wash each other's feet. Now, in a congregation like ours, which is a small congregation, it's true that the minister can do most of the major work of ministry that is needed. One minister should be able, by God's grace, to do most of the major works of ministry, visiting the sick and the widows and the dying, caring for them and their needs, visiting all of the families of the congregation, counseling those who have special needs. That's true. At the same time, one minister can never do all of the work of ministry that is needed. And part of the reason for that is that he simply doesn't know what is needed all the time. The minister doesn't know everything going on in your life. But others might know more than the minister knows. And they might be able to minister to you in ways that he's not able. The minister stands ready always, I do, to minister to you in all of your needs, whatever they are, whenever they happen. But then there's also a work of serving and helping and giving that we all must do in our daily lives. Because the main work of the minister, as one old professor used to say, the minister needs to chain himself to his study desk. He was well-intentioned by that. What he simply meant by that was the minister has to be in his study, working with the scriptures, unpacking, understanding, setting forth the meaning from the Greek and Hebrew. What does the text mean? What does the text say? How does it apply to us? How does it present Christ? That's the main work of the pastor. He has to do all the other work as well. But when the minister brings two solid meals, two solid sermons every Sunday to the flock that they're able to eat and drink, the sheep are generally going to be healthier when they have good preaching that promotes their spiritual health and strength and growth. Now let me give a few examples. The perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Christ gives pastors for that. Equipping the saints, training the saints, preparing the saints for what? Let's take, for example, counseling that is given to young people who are dating, who are engaged, or couples who are married. The whole matter of dating, engagement, and marriage is a huge topic of spiritual needs of the sheep. It always is. The pastor stands ready, always, I do, to minister to you in whatever your needs may be. Dating, engaged, or married. Whatever situations you're facing, whatever needs you have, whatever care it is, come to the pastor for help if you need it. That being said, the pastor is called through preaching and teaching in public, in private, from house to house, to perfect the saints for that work of the ministry. The pulpit through preaching and teaching of the scriptures, is equipping the saints, including, for example, you fathers and mothers, for the work of ministering to your own children. The sermons are meant to do that. Christ gives pastors for that purpose to prepare, equip, strengthen you parents, you grandparents, and all of the saints to give counseling, to give words of encouragement, to give teaching, to give advice, to use your wisdom. Use your wisdom in that. 
We don't barge into people's lives and tell them that we're going to help them. But the preaching equips us for that, trains us for that. And there are many ways that the saints are able to help young people with that. Just think of, for example, becoming a chaperone to a young people's convention. You go to the convention with hundreds of young people and you participate in discussion groups and you listen to the sectionals and you interact with the young people and you have opportunity there to give advice, counsel, encouragement, guidance to the young people in the whole area of dating and engagement and marriage. Think of the great benefit that one married couple can be to another married couple. When one couple is going through a hard time, struggling, facing problems and issues that they can't resolve, maybe they go to the pastor, maybe they go to the elders. That's good. It's also possible that one couple could help another couple because God gives pastors to perfect the saints so that the saints can be involved in ministering to each other. Take a second example. Another massive area of pastoral care that is needed is bereavement, loss, depression. And I'm putting these all together. Abuse, addiction. Take those as examples. Christ gives pastors to the church for the perfecting of the saints to minister to each other in those needs and struggles and problems and and woundedness. The pastor himself stands ready to care for the sheep in all of their needs. Come to the pastor if you need help with those things, with any of those things. And at the same time, the preaching is equipping all of the saints, not just the minister, so that the saints can minister to each other. Take a young mother in the congregation like we had in our first congregation in Holland, Michigan, loses her husband at the age of 30 years old. Three little boys, bereavement, tragedy, loss, pain. The pastor must care for that widow, but all of the saints must work together in caring for that widow in her needs in any ways they can. Depression. One pastor might know more about that than another pastor. Some pastors might not really know how to deal with that. Then maybe there are other saints in the congregation, maybe a doctor, maybe even a Christian psychologist, or some other saint who knows, maybe someone who experienced that themselves. The pastors are given to perfect the saints so that they can care for each other in those needs. Abuse. Spousal abuse. Sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Again, as you know, it's a big topic right now in our churches. The pastors probably know more about that today than they did in the past. But still, pastors don't know everything about those topics. Pastors are ready to help you in those needs. Come to your pastor if you need comfort and encouragement and help. Come to your elders. But the pastor also ministers to all the saints so that the saints can minister to each other in that too. There may be one woman who knows of another woman. Both of them experienced some kind of abuse in their past. And the one may be specially equipped, not only through experience, but through the knowledge of the gospel, through the preaching, to help that other woman. Addiction. The pastor might not have no idea that a certain saint has a certain addiction. But other friends and family might know about that. And the pastor, through the preaching publicly from the pulpit and from house to house, is equipping the saints to minister to each other, to hold each other accountable, to give each other support, encouragement, to bring comfort, but also to hold one accountable to change, to help. Take a third example. The pastor himself has the calling to visit the sheep, visit them, visit the sick, go to the hospital. When I was in seminary, one of my profs said to us, if they call you in the middle of the night and you're in bed asleep, you get up and you go. 
Don't be afraid to call in the middle of the night. The pastors and elders are standing ready to help, to visit. The visiting of the sick, the widows, the new parents, and all of the families and family visitation. At the same time, the ministers, through their public preaching and teaching, in the pulpit, the catechism room, family visitation, are equipping you for the work of the ministry. What does that look like? The preaching of the gospel is equipping you, showing you from the scriptures, of your calling to visit the sick and the widows, your calling to visit the elderly, your calling to care for the other saints in their needs, your calling to open up your home to other saints of the congregation and not just those that you are friends with or family with. Open up your home to the saints. That's ministering to the other saints. You open up your home to them so that you have opportunity to encourage each other, to talk to each other, to help each other, to get to know each other. In the early church in Acts chapter 2, we read about the fact that they visited each other from house to house, house to house to house to house to house. We saw this morning the danger of division in a congregation when groups start to form. The apostle warns against that. And visiting of the fatherless and widows in their affliction is pure religion, James says. Pure religion. Visiting of the widows who've lost their husband. I think I've told you before, in my visiting of widows in the past, I've always found that to be true. What is true of them all is they're lonely. You know what they need. They need a visit. We don't have very many widows at the moment, but someday we might, and you may know widows even outside of our congregation. As we saw earlier, pastors also are to do the work of an evangelist. Pastors have to do that. It's one of my concerns that we Reformed ministers do not appreciate that calling as we ought We are evangelists, pastors are, called to evangelize. But the pastor is not the only one called to do that. Pastors are perfecting the saints for the work of ministry so that the saints are equipped, are trained, are given the knowledge and the motivation through Christ to evangelize. That is, not to preach the gospel, but to witness to our neighbors in every way we can, to show hospitality to strangers when they come. Now, when pastors are doing their work, perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry, that includes also the pastors are to equip the elders for their work and the deacons for their work. And when the pastors are equipping the elders and deacons and all of the saints for the various works of ministry called to be done, then you're going to see fruit. You're going to see, for example, that there are committees that are appointed, like a helping hands committee, an evangelism committee, a building committee, a church picnic committee, a babysitting committee, because there are needs. And so the council appoints committees of the saints so that they can organize ministering to one another You also will see when pastors are preaching the gospel faithfully and teaching the scriptures and making application, you're going to see Christians, the saints, banding together for various kinds of service, forming associations to establish a Christian school for the educating of their children, associations for the publication of Christian books and literature, associations for the relief of the poor, for the care of orphans, or the care of abused women, helping people with addictions and pornography, for establishing of choirs, for singing and making Christian music, for the edification of other members in the church. You're going to see all kinds of things happening in the church. And when those things are happening, are we critical 
of those things. We do have to do things in a way that is in the way of order and decency so that we do not cause unnecessary division. But when a church is healthy, when a church is being fed, when a church is growing, you're going to see those things happening. Now let's conclude the sermon this afternoon by noticing the goal of Christ. Why does Christ give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints so that they will do the work of the ministry? What is the goal? For the edifying of the body of Christ. Edification is the goal. An edifice is a building, a structure that is built up. First you lay the foundation, then you put the bricks on that foundation, you build it. Then you put the roof on, complete it. Edification is building something up. It's not destroying something. It's not tearing it down. It's not ripping it apart. It's building it up. Construction, edification, building. But the text speaks about edifying of a body. How do you edify a body? A body is a living organism. And there we see those two figures that are used for the church. On the one hand, the church is a living body with Christ as our head and we as the living members. But on the other hand, the church is like a building, like a temple that is built up brick by brick. He says, build your body. That's the goal. That's Christ's goal, is to build his body. We probably have all met people who do bodybuilding. Some people take it to an extreme. In the desire to build their bodies, they probably, they at least seem to be idolizing their bodies and their desire to show off their bodies, but we are all bodybuilders. We are all people who are caring for our bodies. We are nourishing our bodies. We are exercising our bodies. We are trying to strengthen our bodies. It's a good thing. Our body is a gift of God, and we are to take care of it. That's what Christ is doing in the text. He's saying, I give pastors and teachers to the church to build my body, to make my body stronger, to nourish it, feed it, grow it, make it stronger spiritually. That's why I give pastors for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We saw in the beginning of the chapter that mention of unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In this chapter, the Apostle is calling our attention again to unity. That's the goal, the great goal. That this church is being built up, edified, getting stronger, until we come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the goal. That we are approaching onto that. We are, we are reaching onto that. We are growing towards that. Now, as we've seen before, that unity of the Spirit is a reality. So the Apostle is here talking not about creating that unity, but expressing it. He's talking about growing stronger spiritually towards a fuller expression of the unity of the Spirit and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Because the unity of the body is seen when all the members of the body together confess the same faith. It's the unity of the faith. They all say the same thing. They all believe the same thing. A unity of faith. It's not a unity at the expense of faith at the expense of doctrine and the truth of Scripture, but a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We all know the Son of God together and we love him. And that unity expresses itself in the love of the saints for one another as they serve each other. The problem that we have seen in this past couple of years is this concept of unity in the truth with no attention 
to the love of the saints. Unity in the truth, yes, but not at the expense either of love, of lowliness of mind, gentleness, meekness, patience, long-suffering. That's the ministry of the saints towards one another. The goal is that we will come closer and closer to a perfect man. What a statement that is in the text. A perfect man. We could translate it this way. A mature adult. When a church descends into all kinds of division and strife and squabbles and envy, that church is childish. The apostle says that in 1 Corinthians. I can't even talk to you as adults anymore, he says. I have to treat you like babies. It's good for us to hear. The goal is that we will come closer and closer to a perfect man, a mature adult. That's the goal. That's why he gives pastors and teachers to the church. He wants us to grow, to mature, to become adults. To become altogether one adult. A perfect man, he says. Not that we are all individual members disconnected from each other doing our own thing, but that we as the church are all binding and pulling together as one mature man. Until we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You think of a a young boy who's growing. And as he grows, he marks a line, how tall he is, grows a little more, marks that line, grows a little more, marks it. At a certain point, he reaches the measure. He's not going to grow any taller. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is the measure of spiritual growth that Christ has purchased for us as a congregation at the cross. It's already purchased. It's there. He has it. He gives us pastors and teachers with this goal that we as a church will grow together, upward, upward, approaching onto that measure, that measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Fullness. The full measure that Christ has for us. Do you think we've reached it yet? Think we've reached that measure as a denomination, as a congregation? Have we rid ourselves of all childishness, spiritual childishness, spiritual foolishness? I'm not just asking you, I'm asking myself too. Have we rid ourselves of all foolishness, all selfishness, all pride? To ask the question is to answer it. As long as we live in this world, we continue to strive towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We continue to strive towards it. We always only can approach onto it in this life. We'll never be perfect. We'll never reach perfection as individuals or as a congregation. A perfect man. There is hope, though. We will reach a perfect man. Not only as a congregation, but as the whole body of Christ from all nations in heaven. That's our hope. As we strive to minister to each other, to care for each other, to grow as a congregation, and there are setbacks and backslidings and and divisions, we have the hope in it all that Christ, Christ, will bring us to that full maturity as a church, to a perfect man in heaven. So in that hope, may we be busy in caring for one another. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. May it Guide us, may it motivate us.
strengthen us, that each of us might go forth today refreshed and invigorated to renew our minds, to grow. May we have been challenged today, each one of us, that we may love the church. May we love all the saints. And may we desire to grow together more and more as a mature adult congregation. We pray that thou would labor, work abundantly by thy spirit through the word, too, that there might be a a flourishing of service and helping and giving towards one another in all of our needs.